stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will be the day when you give in. Give in. Give in. Give in. Hello and welcome to episode 414 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Catonsville, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. And we will be joined today by Caitlin Komeski, who I believe was in Las Vegas. Uh, for those who don't know, Caitlin is um, a poker professional, and I should probably be describing myself that way as well, because there are more and more people like this who, you know, she she plays poker very seriously, makes a lot of money from playing poker, but also, you know, does other things in the poker space. Uh, she hosts a relatively new podcast called Ace Holes, uh, along with Nikki Limo, uh, which we talked to her about some. Um, she also has a pretty active uh, YouTube channel and uh, other like social media presence and is doing a lot of stuff in the sort of like content creation space around um, poker. I actually uh, initially encountered Caitlin because she was making these right, imitation skits, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Where, so like on, on Twitter, she was kind of, and I don't even participate. I, I, this is some of what I, I talked to her about as, as well is like, I, I'm assuming you have not ever participated in, in a Twitter space, Carlos. No, no. So all of a, I don't even know where this came from. Just like all of a sudden there were these things called Twitter spaces that seemed to be like where all the drama and poker was happening. It was like the what used to be NVG <laughs> on, on 2 plus 2 has, had become Twitter spaces. So I guess this is a thing where just like anybody can like host one of these and people just like get on and like I saw a lot of it happens late at night and people are like drunk or whatever else. And um you know, it just goes wild. Um, so Caitlin was like participating in a lot of these and uh, and then was making videos where she was, uh, we'll talk about this. You know, she has a formal training in, in like acting and specifically in, in comedy. So she's kind of like putting on costumes and, and doing these little like caricatures of various prominent people in, in the poker world. So a lot of this, um, I think the first one of these that really went big, or maybe even the first one that she did was around that Jack four hand, uh, you know, the, the, the Jack four call that created so much controversy last year. And of course there were a lot of like pretty big characters, uh, around that. that so, you know, she's done like Sean Deeb and, um, Doug Polk, and just, you know, Matt Berkey, and just a, a bunch of people, uh, you know, she'll sort of embody them. I, I think they're very funny and, and I think she's very talented. And um, I didn't even know about her podcast actually until I was researching for this interview. And then when I found that, I watched that. And I think she's doing some really interesting things on, on the podcast as well. So um, I was excited to talk to her just about the role of um, comedy in, in the like poker creation space. Cause there's actually not a ton around. Like, I think there's a few people who've tried to do like comedic stuff around poker most of it i haven't found that funny like she's really the only person i actually find funny who's like doing poker comedy things her and um will jaffe is the other one right yeah um i think i used the word imitation earlier the word i was looking for was impressions yes i couldn't uh, think of that word either <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i like you know um comedic impressions in general and to just have that combined with poker is, is perfect so like she's really really good at that and so that's kind of kind of when I first uh ran across her as well when she was um posting these videos on Twitter of her uh impersonating different poker players talking about their hand yeah 
Um, and she's done a few since then, but I think they're always like, you know, pretty clever and, and enjoyable. And yeah, so if, if you like that sort of thing, I would say her, her, I mean, she's not doing exactly that, but the podcast even includes some like skits or like sketches that, that uh, they've, so, uh, her, her partner in that Nikki also has some background in um, comedy specifically. And so I think they are better equipped to do this than some of the other people who have tried to do poker comedy stuff that I think often comes across as pretty cringy. Yes. Yes. Uh, before we get to that, we do have a strategy discussion for you. Uh, this, of course, like our podcast, sponsored by GTO Wizard. And if you would like to get a free one-month starter membership at GTO Wizard, one of the ways that you can get that for free is by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Uh, more to the point, you'll get daily strategy segments from Carlos and me. That's the real prize. But you'll also be entered in a drawing where you can potentially win a free one-month starter membership at GTO Wizard. And there really never has been a better time to get um, started at GTO Wizard because if you do get into it, and I will say this is not included in, in the starter membership, but um, GTO Wizard has just added on an enormous update um, where they combined with this other program called Ruse, and they're now capable of doing some real-time solving with... So like, you, GTO Wizard used to be strictly a database lookup thing where you couldn't input any of your own parameters, like bet sizes or ranges or anything. You were, I mean, they they ran very good sims, but you were stuck with whatever stack sizes and bet sizes they'd used in their sims. So you could look up a lot of spots very quickly, but you couldn't run custom spots. Now they've added a functionality where there's still some some limits on this, but you can set your own preflop ranges, you can set your own bet sizes, and it'll solve for for those bet sizes, and it does all this in seconds. Um, so it's the the elite version of GTO Wizard now is like truly twice as powerful as what already used to be an extremely powerful <laughs> tool. Um, I'm really, I mean, they they do they do pay us to <laughs> to say this, but like truthfully, like I I really am just like blown away by how powerful this. Yeah, me too. What blew, what blew me away was the um, thing they put out recently where they showed its comparison to other solvers that were mm-hmm. kind of out before GTO Wizard and how that it was able to beat those in a head up, heads up uh, comparison. That blew me away. So yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to um, taking a deep dive into what they have to offer. Um, you can find some of it. Yeah, so I've already started deep diving, and you can find some stuff that I've written around this at blog.gtowizard.com. Um, and I've already started using some of these new tools to make blog posts. Those are all completely free to um, to read this. Our strategy segment today is coming to us from Thomas, who played this hand in a live 1-2 game at the River Cree Casino, which I don't even know where that is. Uh, it's a one-two game, but we do have an under-the-gun straddle to $5. Action folds to our hero in the low jack with pocket kings. Our hero has a $350 stack. Um, that's going to be roughly the effective stack for this hand. So with that $5 straddle, not super deep, only about 70 straddles deep here. Um, our hero is in the low jack with pocket kings, raises to $15. The cutoff calls, the button calls, Small blind folds, and then the villain one makes a tiny raise to thirty dollars, um, and the straddler cold calls <laughs> villain one's three bet. So all kinds of um, fishy business behind us. And I mean, I guess the first question is, you know, do we want to four bet kings here? It seems slam dunk yes to me. And then the next question is, what size would you choose? 
I would go all in and pay the man his money. He's got aces. He's going to get my money. Or, <laughs> or he doesn't have aces, and I'm going to get his money. But, yeah, I'm sticking this in here. I haven't read Thomas's comments, but I feel some <laughs> trepidation here. But <laughs> I don't care. It's a cash game. I got 60 straddles here. Uh, uh, 70 straddles. I'm sticking it in with Kings here. Who cares? Take my money. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's not any question to me that we want to get stacks in. Um, I, I would be kind of tempted to to try to make it like 90 or 100 or something rather than just going all in. Um, I think people are more likely to make mistakes. So I, I, like, A, I think it's theoretically the the better yeah. size, but I also think exploitatively it's it's the better size. Like, I think people will actually take an all in somewhat seriously, whereas like, I mean, we've already got someone who cold called the three bet to 30. So I think like people will make calls that they... I mean, they'll probably make calls they shouldn't make against the shove also, but I think they'll make more calls that they shouldn't make um, if we put it to like 90 or 100 and, and we do want those calls. Yeah, you know what? I forget. I, I project a lot in this spot because I know if I'm up against you and you ever made it like 90 in this spot, <laughs> I'll figure, well, that's probably not East King. And so I'm probably going to fold like tens of jacks to that. But these people don't play that way. Like in a spot like this where... I'm going to get stacks in no matter what. If it's if it's a spot where I'm going to get stacks in with aces and kings, and I'm also going to get stacks in with ace-king, I just do the thing that make my hand look the most like ace-king. And I think a jam looks more like ace-king here than... Making than, it like 90. Right, right. Like making it 90. If you ever see me do that, I got aces and kings. <laughs> right. but, but they don't know that. And right. so for that reason, you can, like, do this and get called by, like, I don't know, Queen Jack suited or something. Yeah, and when I say this is theoretically correct, I mean that I think this is what a solver would mostly want to do with, like, kings and aces. And it would still, I think, shove ace-king. It would, it would shove some probably maybe, like, queens, um, ace-queen suited. Some more, like, medium-y hands would shove, and there'd be a more polar four-betting range, yeah. there, like, aces, kings, and some bluffs. And so exploitatively, right. I would just drop the bluffs. And then it would be exactly as you said, of, like, if I'm doing this, if like, in the wild, if I'm doing this, but there's already been this action behind me and we've got a straddler who's cold-calling a three-bet, like, I'm not trying to find my optimal bluffs in this situation i'm just like these people are fish i'm gonna you know i'm, I'm gonna beg for action when i have kings races and i'm gonna trust them to not exploit that imbalance right so like against fish i'm gonna make it this 90 uh which screams aces and kings if i'm up like some mediocre player up against some mediocre player like myself i'm jamming because i don't want to give this person you know reason to fold like you know jacks or tens like like honestly I'm more likely to call a jam here. Maybe tens is too light. I don't even know. Like, say Jackson Queens. I'm way more likely to call a jam than a raise to 90. But uh, the average opponent in these games are way more likely to call the, the raise to 90 with a much wider range. So, yeah, I like going for that here. Uh, Thomas does four bet. Uh, he says, at this point, um, I thought the big blind most likely had ace 10 suited plus, ace jack off plus, king queen suited, pocket nines plus. I'm not entirely certain what under the guns range is. I feel it has to include a large quantity of suited type hands that will probably fold to a four bet, but want to see a flop getting a good price because of the clickback. So I will say they're already not getting a good price. Like, I mean, right. <laughs> you're, you're probably in, in the right neighborhood in terms of what this range looks like, but this person is is already playing, you know, I mean, they already 
like straddling is a pretty big mistake, right? Like they're already throwing money into the pot blind. Uh, and now they're throwing in another <laughs> 30 where like, they're just, they're, they're gambling. So I, I think you're just going to have to accept that they have a pretty wide range. Um, I do think that your hand benefits from four betting as we discussed. Um, I, I would rephrase this a little bit. So the way that Thomas puts this, he says, I want to try to four bet and isolate for a heads up pot in position. I, I would rather think about what hands in your opponent's range you're going to benefit from four betting into because you can't really choose what the action, like you can't just, uh, the way Nate used to say this is like preflop is not a dial where you can just, oh, if I raise this amount, I'll get three calls. And if I raise this amount, I'll get two calls. So you can't exactly choose the format to, to isolate. What you can do is to say, okay, I probably have the best hand right now. I can benefit from fold equity. Mostly you're going to benefit if you can cause someone to fold a live ace. Like if if you could get it in against the, the three better, if they have queens and the straddler is in there with like ace four suited. If you could, you know, get it in against queens and cause the ace four suited to fold, that's a pretty good outcome. Honestly, it's an even better outcome if the ace four calls. Like the the goal is not necessarily to get them to fold. The goal is just to like put in more money when you have a really good hand, and your opponents may respond to that by folding hands and have a chance of drawing out on you. That's mostly going to include live aces, but you know, like. Queen tense has the chance of drawing out on you. It's not nothing to get that hand to fold, uh, but it's it's generally even better for you if those hands call. So the fact that these people seem pretty pretty fishy, you know, I like four betting even more. And so th that's what I mean when I say like the goal is not necessarily to isolate. The goal is just to put more money into a pot that you are heavily favored to win. And the fact that like if you don't put more money in the consolation prizes, you get fold equity instead. Like that's a good consolation prize. But it's even better if you get people to put in money from way behind. And most hands are way behind kings. Right. Like we we should be maximizing E V here, especially in a cash game. Like we shouldn't even really care so much the about the results. Yeah, just um maximize E V. That should be the goal. Uh, so Thomas makes it one ten, which I like. Uh, I might have even gone a touch smaller than this, but very much in the right neighborhood. Um the big blind calls uh, under the gun, hems and halls and moans about having to put so much money in the pot with his holding, but then calls as well. Uh, my feeling at this time was that this heavily narrowed under the gun's range, but capped it as well. So his holdings are likely to be like H through jacks, ace jack suited, ace queen suited, ace queen off, maybe ace five suited. Uh, and I just think you're giving under the gun too much credit. Like, I think that uh, they probably have a wider range than this just because they seem like they really want to see this flop. And I could see that being suited connectors. I could see it being pocket pairs. If they're bad enough, maybe it's even queen jack off suit. Like, I, I, I guess part of what I want to, emphasize to Thomas and other people who are listening, you don't have to figure out your opponent's exact range. You're not going to be able to figure out their exact range. You do want to get a sense of kind of like how wide is it? The good news when you have Kings is that like, no matter how wide it is, all those hands you're adding are, they're all worse than Kings. So oh. just, you know, just getting the sense of, okay, this is a really wide range. It's containing many hands that are worse than Kings. Uh, yeah, I guess you can kind of have a sense that some, some hands are more likely than others or whatever, but with such a low stack to pot ratio, it's just like, out flopping kings is really hard. So there's no hand in this person's range. In, in, unless there's an ace on the flop, there's no hand in this person's range where I'm going to be particularly concerned that they outflop me. The wider their range is, the less likely it's going to be that they flop a strong hand. So once I know that their range is full of junk, I'm going to assume the junk is probably what they have on the flop. doesn't mean that they can't have other things, but they probably will have junk no matter what the flop is. Right. Uh, so we go to the flop, $335 in the pot. So the stack to pot ratio is um, below one. There's like $200 in the effective stacks, a little over 200. And uh, the flop is four of diamonds, five of hearts, seven of spades. 
maybe not exactly the flop we were hoping for, but any flop that doesn't have an ace on it, I'm happy with. Um, I think yeah. if there's there's an ace on the flop, like I would fold. Um, early and I, I wouldn't be betting and, and I would fold if someone else bet. I think with with the two other people putting money in, in a four bet pot, even if they are kind of fishy, it's very likely somebody has an ace. And I don't think that that likely to bluff because they also have to worry about like us having an ace. So I, I think w- if there's an ace on the flop, you you do actually want to not put the rest of your money in. But any other flop, the rest of the money is is going to go in. Big blind checks and under the gun shoves for 200. Thomas says, at this point, uh, I stuck to the ranges that I put these player on, uh, which meant that this seemed like uh, one of those pocket pairs they could have, like the H through Jacks that wanted to try to cash in and whatever fold equity they had for protection, um, targeting the ace king portion of my range. So uh, I rejam the three better hems and halls and folds under the gun turns over pocket fives for a set and uh, the hero did not get there. And Thomas's question is, you know, am I being results oriented in uh, feeling like he made a mistake regarding the under the guns range? Like, it, it doesn't matter whether fives is in his range, I guess, is, is what I would say. Like, maybe he has fives, maybe he doesn't. The point is, there's plenty of other hands. Like, you could know fully well that he would play pocket fives like this if he had it. And the fact that it would also very plausible that he has eights through jacks means it's going to be correct for you to call anyway. It, the poker is not about being sure that you have the best hand or like ruling out all possible better hands or even figuring out your opponent's exact hand, certainly. Once the stack to pot ratio is this low, you just want to recognize, okay, there's plenty of hands worse than mine that could play like this. Some of them might be shoving for value. Some of them might be shoving for protection. Some of them might be draws or something as semi-bluffs. Uh, some of them might be better hands than mine. Um, but because of all those possibilities, it's worth taking the risk of running into the pocket fives or the risk of getting drawn out on for that matter in exchange for the reward of you know often being being well ahead and winning a big pot and it's just going to be correct for both of you to get ranges in pretty wide um to get money in pretty wide once the stack to pot ratio is this low yes yes and the other thing is this even if all he had in this pre-flop range was pocket five you still make money because he's not going to hit the set often enough to make up for all the times he misses. So this guy called 30, and then he had to call another 80 uh, once we um, once we raised the kings. So this is not the exact math, but the um, rule of thumb that I learned from Andrew was that you can set mine when you're when you can put in when you can win like 10 times your money. So this guy's putting in another 80. And he's only going to hit a set roughly one time out of 10. So if you just think about it that way, in those 10 opportunities, he's putting in $800. And the one time he hits, he only wins $350 from you. So when you think about it that way, if all he had in his range pre-flop was pocket fives, you made money. Oh, and then on top of that, we know he has other things in his range besides pocket fives. And like Andrew just said, you're going to make money from those as well. If he's going to play eights the same way or nines or tens. Uh, you're going to make money from those as well. So, yeah, you definitely don't want to be result results-oriented here. Like, this guy clearly made a massive mistake, and uh, that's what you should be looking to do in poker is, like, put in a lot of money where you have good hands against people who are uh, prone to make massive mistakes like this. Yeah, and Thomas's other question is, you know, how do you get better at hand reading in general? And I really I encourage people to think of it more in terms of range reading than hand reading, where the goal is not to figure out your opponent's exact hand or even to figure out 
exactly which hands are or aren't going to be in their range, as much as just to get a general sense of like the shape of their range. And that's why I kept emphasizing preflop. Like at no point did I specify with you, you or I, Carlos, did, did we specify the exact range of hands we thought the villain was going to have the way that Thomas did? You know, that, right. that's not really our objective. We're just trying to recognize roughly how wide do we expect this range to be and you know, some of that is, is recognizing like their incentives or what actually makes sense for this person strategically and then some of it is recognizing what have they told us about who they are and what their personal objectives are when they're playing poker and this person's objective seems to be like to gamble and see flops uh, so you know recognizing right. that you can just acknowledge that um they're probably playing like a, a wider range. And that's really all the information that you need. Uh, because again, our, our goal is not figure out exactly what they have and play perfectly against it. It's just to recognize which hands are giving us incentive to do which which things. Like you really want to be thinking in terms of risk and reward. So yeah, you can yes. you can recognize like, yeah, there's the risk that this person has a like maybe someone's still playing aces, maybe someone has flopped a set. Like those are risks. Uh, and it's just a question of is there enough reward to compensate you for those risks? And here the answer is very much yes, because you don't even have to risk that much money compared to what's already in the pot. Right. Uh thank you, Thomas, for writing. And uh, again, everyone, if you want to hear great strategy segments like those on the daily, then you can subscribe to Thinking Poker Daily at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. And now please enjoy our interview with Caitlin Komeski. Caitlin Komeski, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I truly am a, a big fan of your work. I think there's there's a lot of people who try to do funny stuff in, in the poker world, and I think that you actually pull it off, which is great. <laughs> I'll take the compliment. Thank you so much. Yeah, definitely uh, take some big swings in there. And so I like to hear when it connects with people. And I, I was not surprised to learn that you do actually have some um, some professional training as as an actor and as a, uh, can I still say comedian or are you just a comedian now? I mean, I, it, those gendered terms don't really bother me. The whole like actress versus actor thing or ladies tournaments versus women's events. I'm pretty laid back about, you know, like a name is just a name. So comedian works. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so you were you essentially had an acting career prior to getting into poker or you were on that track anyway? Yeah. So I went to NYU and went to their Tisch school, the arts. I was an acting major at the Stella Adler studio of acting, spent four years there. And then I moved to Los Angeles and pursued stand-up comedy and acting out there. And I uh, toured as a stand-up comedian and host of a burlesque show. Uh, during my time in LA. And I was also a student at the Groundlings Comedy School and Prof School. That's best. So I, I knew I knew some of that. The burlesque show thing is is new for me, but that, that does seem like a good fit for you. Yeah. So I met a friend doing a play, doing a Shakespeare play in downtown LA, like one of my first years living there. And she was a burlesque performer um, on the weekends and in the evenings and stuff. And so she got me one of my first gigs doing like a 10 minute stand up set for this burlesque show. And that was really cool because when you first start out doing 
stand up, you know, you can only get like three, seven minutes at a time if you're lucky. And these burlesque shows would give you like a good chunk of time. And then she started her own brand and started touring with this burlesque troupe called Pinups on Tour, which is a show that has a pretty cool cause. You know, it's um, in support of our troops, our veterans and active duty military. So it would be free for our service men and women to attend. And uh, we would, you know, do our best to provide them with some nightlife. A lot of our venues were um, AMVETS posts, American legions and VFW posts. And so those were really special years connecting with, you know, salt of the earth veterans and active duty military across the country. I've been to almost all the different States and got a lot of time on stage to work on my crowd work and my stand up material. And those were really happy years for sure. Yeah. I, I knew the thing about, you know, it, it's hard starting out as a stand up getting time. Um, my understanding is also that it can be hard filling time like there's a reason why uh beginning stand-ups are only getting three minutes was that uh challenging when you had to, to do 10 or you had to you know, improvise for longer than that yeah i mean when you first start stand-up comedy like everybody sucks like you just you get up there and you're terrible like you things that you think are funny just fall flatter than a pancake and it's just like absolutely painful to start anything new, just like when you start poker and you don't really understand and you're terrible and you just lose and lose and lose. That's definitely what the journey of a stand-up starts as. And you got to try a lot of kiss, a lot of frogs before you find the the Prince Charming, the jokes that work. And that's definitely a job that you learn on your feet. So yeah, it can be difficult to, to come up with material and stuff. And, but it's just like a muscle, like even if you're writing drama or nonfiction, you know, you just got to write every day. You got to get up there every day. And then uh, if you want it to be like your job or your full-time gig, you got to exercise it like any other muscle. Yeah. And and how, um, like what, what was the plan? Was there a plan of, you know, how, right? Like these are hard things to make money at uh, acting and, and stand up. The plan was to, you know, like win an Oscar and be an internationally famous um, actress. That was the plan. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. Well, you've, you've got a GPI award, though. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's better than an Oscar if you think about <laughs> it, because it's newer. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, the plan was to be um, an actress and you know, you kind of like got to go with the flow and the turns, twists and turns that life takes you on. And yeah, <laughs> I wound up now I'm a poker content creator, uh, which is almost, you know, pretty much just as cool as being an international film star. Yeah. So how, how did you find poker? So my dad taught me how to play when I was really young. And when I was like touring with the burlesque show and playing poker um, in my 20s, recreationally, when we were on tour and stuff, the first time I played in a casino was actually a Hustler Casino when I was living in L.A. And I played the one, three games down there when I was like gigging and in between tours with the burlesque show. And uh, then when I moved back to Texas and I was working in hospitality at a hotel, I would like go and work at the hotel from 7 a.m. to 3 or 4 p.m. or whatever. And then I would get off and go straight to Texas Card House. And I did that for about two years. I had this great group of people that I really cared about in the Austin poker scene. And it was just, you know, worth it to me to take a leap of faith and make that, you know, my full-time pursuit. What did you have to do to, to get to the point where you were making that much? I mean, the, the way you presented that story was just like, I just started playing poker and I was making a bunch of money for, I mean, what, was it that easy or did you have to go through a process of like studying and 
the first poker club that opened was in 2015. I moved back to Texas in 2018. So these, it was still like a really new scene. And, you know, when poker scenes are new, I'm sure like the fields are, they were softer, I'm sure two, three years ago, even than they were. And I think because I was playing so often, the volume that I was putting in, I didn't start taking poker seriously and studying like game theory optimal till like well after I had made up my full-time pursuit. Um, but I just, I think I believed in myself and I was, you know, really good at reading people. And I think, but like, honestly, I think it was the volume, just the amount of time I was spending at the table, you know, at that point, you know, the pattern recognition just like gets into your bones and it gets really internalized to where I don't even know at the time if I could articulate what I was doing correctly. Now I think I can, and that I was willing to take risks. I knew, and I was really good at identifying player profile types. I knew who to bluff and who not to bluff. I, you know, knew who I could open speculative hands against and who I couldn't. And those things that maybe I didn't even have words to describe back then, I was just naturally identifying by nature of the fact that I was playing, like, even though I was working this hotel job, like 40 to 50, 50 hours a week, I was also playing like 20 to 30 hours of cash wow. poker on top of it. And I, I think it was honestly just like the volume and the time. And what, I mean, I know you, you kind of grew up playing poker, but like, why did it grab you to the point where, you know, you wanted to put in that much time doing it even before you were thinking that you were going to make a living from it? I think one of the things I've always liked about poker is how empowering it is, you know, and the immediate gratification of being able to like take a hold of it and like, oh, I can leave with more money than I started with. So you're getting like that immediate validation, almost like stand up comedy, where it's like you make a joke, they laugh immediately, you get that immediate feedback. I feel like poker has that in terms of like, I sit down, I play well, I leave with more money than I started. And I think that feedback loop was... You really are a cash game player, huh? Oh, yeah, big time. <laughs> so that was definitely something that connected with me uh, really early on at a time in my life where my health hadn't been doing so well. I had to move back to Texas. And um, it was really, you know, just like getting that success and getting that notoriety. And I started organi game organizing pretty early on in my uh, career in Texas and just like really networking, using my people skills and yeah, just getting that feedback loop, it was really easy to just dive in and be like, oh, I belong here. Like, this makes sense. This feels right. When you say game organizing, you mean sort of getting together a group of people who are going to start a particular game at a particular time? Absolutely. So when I was about a year into playing poker, there was a smaller club that I really wanted to um, get into a really juicy game on Friday night. And I wanted to and I wanted to play at this club. I wanted the club to do well. So I started working for the club and organizing two, five, no limit games. And towards the ends there, I was organizing between like two to three games a week. I had a Thursday morning game where I'd bring donuts, be a lot of the same people every week. That was pretty popular. And uh, I just like really created a Rolodex of people and would have pop-up games that would come up every so often just to try to keep games going for that club and to maybe hopefully get me into this other juicier game that I had been excluded from that I was trying to get into. So, yeah. That's so interesting because people have this idea. And I think this, this is true for some people that 
poker is just kind of a, you don't need people's skills, you know, to play. in fact, I think that's why some people <laughs> thrive in poker is that you can just sort of like, oh, I just, I just, you know, walk into the casino and sit down in the game and do my own thing and, and leave. And I don't have to interact with, with people, but that like that there are other routes to being successful in poker and there are other skills. I mean, not that you're not good at cards also, but that there are ways of um, leveraging other skills besides just like card skill in order to make a career of poker. Yeah, there's definitely a way to have a poker career and live in isolation and just like, you know, be the lone wolf and beat your own drum and do your own thing. Like you said, like show up, play a public casino game, get on the list, get in, uh, keep your headphones on at the table. Don't say a word the whole time, make your money and go home. But that that's not necessarily like a, an enriching life for me that I would want to live. I'm uh, I definitely like to have fun at the table and a lot of the things I like about the game, the psychological warfare, the conversation that, uh, that appeals to me, I, I don't know that I'd want to do that. And I definitely feel like there are a lot of team elements where you need to surround yourself with people that you study with, people that you're playing with, people you're creating, we're in the content space, people you create content with. I think it's, it's very important, just like all things in life. I want to take a second to apologize to Carlos because he probably feels attacked right now. Yeah. Why yeah. is that? Carlos is Carlos the lone wolf? Yeah, I'm <laughs> he definitely, comes in with his headphones. I'm definitely the lone wolf with the headphones. Um, but that's okay. My my take is it. My take on it is that the um, introverts should be allowed to be introverts, and the extroverts should be allowed to be extroverts. Hundred percent. I don't disagree with you, and I think. You know, if that's what makes you feel comfortable at the table, I go back and forth between wearing sunglasses and sometimes people will be like, oh, well, why are you wearing sunglasses? That's not very, you know, social, but sometimes that's what makes me feel comfortable. Poker's a really hard game and you got to take your edges where you can. Do you do you find that being a comedian and uh, a personality in poker that people try to like get you to do the thing at the table? I try to get myself to do the thing at the table, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, because I think I personally, like I play better. I have more fun when I show up in that way where I'm, you know, table captain, leading the action, making sure everyone around me is having fun. I think I'm more present. I'm more in the moment. I'm, you know, less likely to make mistakes than when I, like if I try to be the grinder that shows up with the headphones and the sunglasses and I'm not engaging with anybody, a lot of times I can be too in my head and that can be really bad for me and I can overthink things or complicate, you know, scenarios that don't need to be complicated and I can end up punting in situations where if I was just relaxing and having a conversation and asking Dan from Miami, you know, what his kids are doing this summer, <laughs> I have a much better shot of being successful. So I think for me, I definitely try to show up to that person at the table. But, you know, like this summer was a great example. It's a long haul. I was there for two months. I was trying to create content on top of playing poker and it's hard to show up as that person every day to be, you know, the, the fun action-y player, you know, but I definitely think I'm more successful when I do that. So a huge shift that I'm going to try to make moving forward for the next couple of months, what I want to focus on is really like my mental game and taking care of myself off the felt the best that I can. So I can show up in the way that I know gives me the best edge to be successful. 
Yeah, I, I am impressed by doing both of those things. I, I had the idea one summer that I was going to uh, do a vlog. And fortunately, I didn't tell anyone about it because I had the idea that it might not, you know, I was going to record a few episodes first. And uh, I did exactly, exactly one. And I was like, no, this is not going to work. <laughs> the last it's thing I want to do man. after I finish playing poker is then like get on a camera and recount like the shitty things that happened. Uh, that's what's so hard about like the vlogging stuff for me, like the results sharing, I've never wanted to share my results. Like even when I'm winning, I don't want to like shit, like, Oh, look at all this money. Or like, if I'm losing, like I'm a loser, I'm a fraud. What is my life? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't want like the general public to go on the emotional roller coaster of being a gambler with me. I feel like it's so private and vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I occasionally um, will try to you know share. I used to do this, um, share a hand that I think I played badly but then like people feel the need to like tell you that you played badly or like ask you strategy questions about it and, like I already said it's a bad hand I don't need to like <laughs> explain there's no strategy behind it it was a mistake yeah exactly like bro I got distracted I made a mistake <laughs> leave me alone did you always have the idea that you were going to you know, do the content creation thing within poker or was it more like these were separate aspects of your life and at some point you were like oh hey I could be doing I could be doing like making comedy skits within the poker space so yeah, when I moved back to Texas, I was like going through a hard time personally, like I, you know, um, had kind of my entertainment career had stalled uh, because of my health crisis and other personal issues that were going on. And uh, I was feeling really low. And I didn't know, you know what, I was just living from day to day. I was just living for my family, just trying and it was like, really, I talk about this a lot in detail on Nick uh, Bertucci's podcast, but just like there was poker that brought me back to life that gave me, you know, a reason to live again and get excited about it. And uh, ever since then, I really tried to stay in the moment and take things one day at a time. And I definitely, you know, when I first started poker, there was like the Brad o this like 2019, 2020, there were the Brad Owens and the Andrew Nemes around. And I was starting to like, see like, oh, I could do this. I found Marley and Greg goes all in. And I was like, oh yeah, I could do something like this. So I told myself and I was telling other people like, I'm going to start a vlog. But at the time I was like doing all this game organizing. And for that same club, like I had redesigned their website. I was doing their social media posting for that, for that club in Austin. So that was sort of my second year in poker. And then when the club sold and was uh, taken over by new management, I was finally freed up to say, okay, well, I'm going to start my vlog now. So that was the beginning of 2022 when I finally pulled the trigger and decided to put myself out there again, like content wise. And I actually started with a vlog and I did about seven or eight episodes of the vlog. I didn't do a lot of hand histories. It's not like some of the more, um, vlog formulas that are out there in terms of you have like some lifestyle elements, you know, you got this sped up and slowed down footage in the middle and like transition shots, but it's mostly hand histories. I very much did not want to make educational content. <laughs> I knew that right away. So it was more of like a lifestyle thing and uh, gave you a clue into like my chaotic life in Vegas, but they didn't really get a lot of traction. And it wasn't until the Jack Forehand scandal where I had the idea to kind of do this like put on a bunch of wigs and do the crazy characters that it really connected with the community so I was really lucky that I found that and I really just tried to listen to you know the community's feedback in terms of what they respond to and what I'm hearing so far is they definitely want me to be funny and they don't want my blogs <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, there's just like there's so many people making the the strategy content, and it seems like the or even the like the the lifestyle content versus the the comedy thing does seem like something where you have a really unique capacity relative to other uh, other like content creators. Yeah, it's I I love to be do the silly voices and the the crazy characters. So I'm I'm really glad that the communities responded to it, and I get to continue to make more and figure out how to make money doing it. You know. It doesn't seem like you're in danger of running out of crazy characters. No, no. Maybe I need to find some more wigs, though. <laughs> what What does one learn at like Groundlings, for instance? You know, like what What is that? What actually goes into? Because I think people have the idea of like you can't teach funny. I mean, is is that true, or like what What can you teach? Um, I think like being naturally funny is definitely like a gift. Like I've always been the class clown. I've always loved to make people laugh. And I think a lot of people in comedy have that in common. Um, at the ground, so they're different like improv schools of thought, right? So the groundlings is very character based. So they, you, you focus on creating a character and then that's, and then that informs like your work in the improv and you work with your scene partner. And then for instance, like Upright Citizens Brigade, another improv school, they sort of approach it differently where they teach their students to find the game. And it's a little bit more intellectual and a little bit more uh, cerebral of an approach where with groundlings, it's more like, let's find the voice, let's find the posture, let's find uh, the rhythm of the character. And it's easy to see the through line to your your videos. So why start the the podcast? I mean, there's so many people making great podcasts already. You know, why, why do you need another one? So I honestly met Nikki. Um, I met her for the first time last fall, Nikki Limo, who I do the podcast with. And we just immediately connected. We like, I laugh harder with her than I do with people I've known for decades. She is so funny and we're definitely so similar and so different in a lot of ways, but we had a really great chemistry she ended up. She being also has date. like the formal training in in kind of like community. Hundred percent. Yeah. So she did Upright Citizens Brigade, and then she was like an OG YouTuber. She started her first YouTube channel in two thousand five, and she grew wow. that channel to like half a million subscribers doing sketch comedy. She came up with like a lot of these big YouTube names that we think of in the heyday, like um, Trisha Paytas, Grace Helbig, Hannah Hart. Like a lot of these were her contemporaries that she was creating with and coming up with and she did really well in that world and after she was my date to the gpr award and we figured out that we had so much in common we had a great chemistry we were speaking the same language and she actually approached me and was like would you ever be interested in starting a podcast and i just said absolutely snap call and then we got on a call the next week and the rest is history that we just were both very um interested in collaborating and working together um, I think why we chose a podcast is because that's the easiest thing to pump out week after week. <laughs> We're both really passionate about sketch comedy and creating characters. And I think as it evolves and as we get more sponsorship dollars behind it, we would love to do more produced sketches like the the vlog father sketch we did with Andrew and Brad to help promote and premiere the sketch. I think our, our podcast, I definitely think that we see ourselves moving in that direction long term. But in terms of like finding a way to monetize really quickly and find sponsorship dollars and ad breaks, the podcast just seems like the best way to get started with that formula. Well, and that again is, I mean, I, I was joking before about, you know, uh, uh, all the good podcasts are taken, but um, I mean, it does <laughs> seem like you're you're doing something 
that's pretty different from, I mean, I'm not super familiar, I guess, with, with the podcast space, but I don't, I don't know that there's another one. Like, I think we're pretty similar to a lot of other podcasts that are out there. There's sort of like, oh, we interview and, you know, we talk about strategy. And um, I don't, I don't know that there's really anyone else who has, you know, quite as many sort of prepared, like, games and, and then the level of like production value that you all have. And uh, it, it, it does feel like something that's, that's pretty unique. Yeah. We've been, we've been having a super fun time figuring out and carving our niche and creating a show that we hope people want to go on. And that seems like it would be fun to be a guest and uh, a unique experience to, to be an ace hole. And we're having so much fun so far meeting all these people and putting people in unique situations. And because the poker world is full of like funny, fun people, but I think, you know, it can be a really intense game and we don't always get to see that sides that those sides of people. So yeah, we, we're definitely trying to carve out something unique and hopefully it continues to connect with the community. We can continue to grow. I mean, we've only been around for a couple months now, but we've had a, like a lot of really positive responses. When Nikki and I were walking around the series, we were getting recognized a lot and people would, you know, be like, oh my gosh, I'm really enjoying Ace Holes. So um, I'm really hopeful that we'll continue to grow on that platform and create a space for comedy within our community. Outside of the content that it generates for you, um, what are your thoughts on, on sort of the, the role of uh, Twitter and like other social media in, in the poker world? Because um, I can't tell, I mean, it, it seems like you've made a lot of stuff sort of like joking about having an unhealthy relationship with like Twitter spaces. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of like valuable stuff that, that comes off of Twitter. And it's good that like we have, it used to be the two plus two forums, but like that there is some place where we can discuss like community issues. But um, it seems like there is a lot of like bad stuff that, it, that happens in that space also. <laughs> Well, in general, you know, Twitter does have like a lot of vitriol and haters on it. I'm like, honestly, I've done a really good job of just like snap muting and blocking people and not engaging with people that like, if you don't like, if you, if someone leaves a comment like, oh, this isn't funny or, oh, you're bad at poker, those comments I'm not necessarily going to delete. But if it's something toxic about me personally or my appearance, or I just, I just don't think that that's healthy for me. So I just, my policy with that is I just snap delete and before I even have time to make the memory and dwell on it and just try to continue on. Um, in terms of like me making like the sketches about uh, Twitter spaces and all that, I thought Twitter spaces were really unhealthy just because I feel like a lot of people in poker have unhealthy relationships with their sleep cycle. And it was just like a large group of us just like being codependent <laughs> and like avoiding sleeping at like two, three in the morning. It, but it's like great for there to be a space for people to come and talk and have like a casual interface. And it's like really cool that like, you could get on a Twitter space and all of a sudden you're talking to Daniel Negrano and it like gives access to some of these like higher ranking, you know, or like more established personalities. So I, I do think there are a lot of great things about Twitter spaces, but I am glad that they've calmed down a bit just because they can be really addictive <laughs> and like really unhealthy in terms of uh, loss of sleep. But, you know, you always got to take the good with the bad. And that goes for poker, you know, one man's lucrative poker career is another man's debilitating addiction. <laughs> it's always that thin line. And, and it's like that with a lot of things. But I don't even really, I mean, this is such like an old man line of questioning, but like, I don't even know where Twitter spaces 
came from. Like just all of a sudden that seemed to be like the thing I've never been on one, but like, I, I, I didn't even, I'd never heard of it. I didn't know what it was. And all of a sudden that's, it's just like overnight. It felt like that was where all the, all the interesting poker stuff was happening was on this like space. Well, I think it was like popping off and getting juicy just because, you know, people would come in a little bit sauced, you know, they happen late at night. They can really impulsively, you know, like a big name is a little sauced up or a little stoned or whatever. And they get on uh, Twitter spaces and they say some outrageous shit that stirs up the community and gets everybody talking, you know, so it's a little bit of that gossip machine. That's like, Oh my gosh, did you hear what, you know, Sean Deeb or uh, who else was really active in those, you know, so-and-so set in these spaces. And then, you know, uh, Eden rocks is such like a polarizing and uh, that's another, I've, I have no idea who that is. Like I've, I've seen people make references to them and that there seems to be some controversy around them. And I've, I've no idea who they are. You know, I'm rooting for him. He took a lot. He did like a couple of things that were a little, you know, getting to be a little, I don't know, out of bounds or whatever. And he really took his feedback. And I think he's on a sobriety journey right now. And it's hard not to root for anybody making, you know, positive changes to help their life. I think he's like two weeks, two, three weeks sober. So I'm rooting for him and I hope he does well. I think he's like working with the Big Bet Live new live stream from what I can tell and hear him and Kiro working to promote that new stream and, you know, Vegas needs a live stream. So we'll see how it continues to go. Uh, but yeah, Eden's had some dark moments, but I think he's trying to, to write the ship and turn things around. So I'm rooting for him. I mean, it's, it, it, it seems like kind of the, the premise of a lot of the, um, I don't know if they're sketches exactly, but the, the, the things you've done are sort of like making fun of the way that people engage, um, not just on, on the Twitter spaces, but like the other like vlogs and, and, and stuff that, that they make. Um, is that, I guess, how much does that reflect your actual, like, do, do you have that kind of cynical, um, all this discourse is just like people, people complaining, or, or is that really just like a character for you? I honestly try to approach it from more of a positive space as I want to like highlight how the personalities like that's where the first one came from was like the Jack Force scandal, just like all these different cast of characters, like sitting around talking about this one poker hand and all the different figure, you know, you got like beans who wears like the fun Hawaiian shirts and he's like a fun, cool guy. And then you got Tom Dwan and Sean Deeb sort of playing this like good cop, bad cop thing. And then of course you have, you know, Robbie in the center is this like incredibly magnetic charismatic, beautiful woman who, you know, can get kind of spacey. And I was just, I really just try to highlight. I enjoy people. I think people are funny. So I really try to approach it as, um, you know, just trying to highlight some odd personalities or whatever. I'm never trying to hurt anyone's feelings or make anyone feel bad or anything, but I definitely, at times when I see like hypocrisy, that'll definitely be a through line in my work that I'll point that out. But a lot of times I'm like making stuff up. Like the, I, I just did a video, my most recent one with like Martin Cabrill, like I watched a little bit of his Doug interview, but I mostly like the joke was just like, me doing the Czech Republic accent. And I was saying just like a bunch of nonsense that like he he never had said publicly. So some of the time I'm like actually saying verbatim what people said, like the Jordan Christos impression I did, like was literally just like wild stuff that he had said late night on Twitter. But then other times the, the joke is something different. It's either like how the funny costume or the funny wig or the funny voice or the accent. So you know, at the end of the day, I'm just trying to make funny stuff <laughs> and whatever I can do with the raw material to make it funny. Well, I'll do that. 
if if you got the choice and if you had to choose, would you rather be known as uh, an extremely funny person or an extremely good poker player? I think I'll make more money being known as an extremely funny person who oh, is just is, secretly good at poker. That's not how I thought you were going to. Yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I guess I asked be, being known as rather than actually. But yeah. I, I want to be. I think I used to care a lot more about wanting to be known as a good poker player because like sort of we went over this in my background where like at first I was just sort of like an intuitive field player and I would take these wild, crazy swings and would make these wild, crazy low variance plays that had absolutely nothing to do with games, very optimal and everything to do with what I was feeling or sensing in the moment. And when I you know, was coming up in the Texas scene those first couple of years, people talked mad shit about me because I was terrible and I was a donkey, like according to, you know, game theory optimal, I was, you know, off the reservation. And I think that's, was the motivation behind me starting to take game theory more seriously and understanding how some of these really educated players were approaching the game so that I can compete better on a higher level. But sometimes I kind of regret that impulse that I had. And I think maybe if I had stayed truer to myself, it would have been a different journey. Or maybe, So that's something I'm implementing now is finding that old dog, that old Caitlin who, you know, could be stuck 4K in a 510 game, did not give a shit, would know I'm going to leave with my profit rather than like, you know, Caitlin who grinds hundreds of thousands of hands online and knows my preflop charts backwards and forwards. And I get tilted by losing like one three bet pot in level two, <laughs> you know, it's like poker is like a wild, crazy, layered, complicated game. And I think you need both. You need the crazy girl who, you know, people can talk mad shit on because she's taking wild donkey plays. And you also need to kind of have an understanding of how the top players are approaching the game. That's what I was going to ask is, is, can't you just do both, right? Like you, I mean, I guess you have to put the one, set the one aside for a little bit, but like, I think ideally you kind of learn the mathematical side of things and then use that to better inform the intuition or you know, whatever you want to call the, like the, the wild and crazy side of things. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think ideally they're, they're working together. And that's so, that's like so many things in life, you know, so many different avenues that you study, like even like painting, it's like, oh yeah, you learn color and theory. And then at the end, you know, you throw it all away and learn how to paint with the heart. I feel like it's like that in sports worlds too. Like you're studying your fundamentals of basketball. And then like, once you get to a certain point where your fundamentals are solid, you get to kind of let that be internalized and find the the instincts again, you know? Have you studied painting too? I did paint in high school and into my 20s a little bit. I had an Etsy shop briefly. It was one of my side hustles when I was living in LA. But yeah, I do, I do love to paint. What other secrets are you hiding from us? <laughs> what, what? I'm trying to come. I had open heart <laughs> surgery. Not a lot of people know that. Was was that the the health issue that you were alluding to? That um. That no, that was much know? earlier in life. Oh, okay. No, I was uh 13 years old when I had my open heart surgery. Oh, geez. Mm -hmm. That's scary. I I made it through great, you know? <laughs> I missed <laughs> I, Yeah, so when you're a kid, you know, you recover pretty quickly, uh, blessedly, and those kinds of things. So I think I only missed, like, and they do it over Christmas. Like, it was like a planned surgery. Like, I was born with a congenital defect, like a hole in my heart that was deforming a valve, so they had to close it. And so they plan it, like, over Christmas. So you, like lose or miss minimal amounts of school 
Wow. Full of surprises. Do you have any surprises? <laughs> Do I have any surprises? I think I've been pretty, I mean, there might be surprises to you. I don't know that there's too much. I mean, I've, we've been doing this for like 10 years. So I think pe people listening, there's not a lot I could surprise them with. <laughs> they know your full medical history. <laughs> I, I don't have a very interesting medical history. I did. I, actually, people might not know this. I wore, um, I had to wear braces on my legs for um, eight months or so. I had a thing called Osgood Schlatter's disorder, uh, which meant that my, um, I don't know how to describe it. Like the, the the muscles of my knees were too strong and they were like pulling the bone out of place. So they had to like Stop. immobilize the, yeah, it was really painful. They had to like immobilize knees my knees. were hulking out from the rest of your leg. That's <laughs> yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Oh I, I still God. have little like bumps below my kneecaps from, from where they were like pulling, pulling stuff out of joint. But yeah, I, I used to be a pretty good soccer player and that kind of, I mean, into, this is when I was like 13 or something. I wasn't like about to Wait, Was pro. it like Forrest Gump where you had like the big old metal they weren't Clanky that big. No, it, it like fit oh. under my it fit under my pants. Um, but it did. You know, it, it was. Uh, I, I I had to walk. You know, I, with one like stiff stiff leg. Uh, but it, it was only one at a time, so I could still use one leg. I just sort of hobbled. I didn't need like crutches or anything. Okay. Well, there we go. We're like we found a secret. We found yeah, a medical. Never, never before <laughs> shared on the thinking poker. I don't think even Carlos knew that. No, no, I did not know that. I did not. Yeah, it also intersects. I did the, the joke on here is often that um the Carlos and, and my previous co-host before him um are, are the guys who know about sports and I don't know anything about sports, but the truth is I was once a fairly competitive soccer player and then uh I, I was out of it for a year and I never got back into it as a result of that. That's how really cool. I'm sorry, Carlos, go ahead. I was like, how competitive? I mean, how competitive can it be if you call it soccer? Right. I mean, I was, I was like routinely the best player on my like 12 and under team. Okay. So no premier league. No, uh, I was, I, I was not being, <laughs> I was not being scouted by anyone. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so Kayla, are, are you going to start painting poker players? Painting? Definitely not. No. Um, I used to do like giant oil paintings. So it's it's an expensive hobby. It's a cumbersome hobby. It takes up too much space. So um, I color in adult coloring books and I'll like doodle and sketch in a journal, but don't really paint like I used to. Yeah, it seems like a big thing to just turn off. You know, if it was like if you, you were that into it at some point to then just like, I'm just not going to do this anymore. Well, it was like a big fork in the road, right? So like when I was in high school, I took art and drama classes. And I had like a really weird schedule where I took most of my science and math my freshman and sophomore year so that my junior and senior year in high school, I was mostly taking like fine arts classes. When I was applying to colleges, I applied to like Savannah College of Art and Design was like a big one that I wanted. And I got into that school. And so it was like actually a decision I had to make, like, do I want to be a painter or do I want to be an actress? And Ultimately, I decided I wanted to be an actress. What what drew you? I mean, is it just like you kind of enjoyed the the attention and the adrenaline of? Oh yeah, big time attention whore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I just that's what I wanted to do from the time I was a little girl. Like my mom put me in my first little theater class when I was like three years old. There's this thing at the Dallas what was it the Dallas Children's Theater or whatever called Capers for Kids where we would do like arts and crafts and like little plays. I remember the very first little play that I did when I was four years old. And uh, I did children's theater all the way through grade school and then got really serious about acting in high school, did all the plays. And yeah, I just, I was really passionate about it. I like performing. 
I never quite felt as alive as when I was on stage. So got chase that high, you know, man. <laughs> <laughs> of, of the poker players that you've you've inhabited, which one? Like, what are the ones that stand out as the, as the ones that you've most enjoyed doing or that you're most proud of? Well, it's hard to beat Robbie. You know, I get to have my tits out. I get to draw on super big lips and like have a bunch of attitude and fabulous hair. So it's it's really fun to be the women in general because I have to like, you know, the guys, you get to like dress yourself down and draw on a beard and you don't really have to worry about how you look. But I like to be really like feminine and girly too. So it's really fun to embody these super hot ladies like Liv Bory, Veronica Brill, uh, Lynn G., uh, Robbie, it's, it's, it's fun to embody them. Cause I, I, I like to pretend I'm a hot girl on their level. I'm a hot girl, but like they're, they're on another level, you know, it does seem like it gives you a little bit more to, to work with just in general. I mean, I guess people who have put more thought into, into their appearance or have something more distinctive about them. Uh, not that there aren't male poker players like that, but I feel like a lot of us are, are deliberately not standing out very much with our appearance. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I, I like to do anyone that has a silly voice. Like I did um, Martin Cabrillo, like we were talking about. And then um, the guy that Doug Colt got mad at for saying, what's up, guys? What's his name? I don't think I can come up with it. Uh, I, but anybody... I might have missed this entire drama cycle. Oh, he just got mad at him for a little bit. Le- Lex, Fre- Lex, Lex Friedman. Oh, I yeah. It's... I know that name. Yeah. Yeah. So like any non-American that I get to try to do an international accent for is funny. Like uh, Kilbane, Henry Kilbane was <laughs> yeah. really funny. He gave me shit because I couldn't maintain the accent. I like went in and out of Australian and like Kings and Queens <laughs> English and Cockney and back and forth. Because like sometimes the, the joke isn't always that like the impression is perfect. You know, sometimes the joke can be, you know, the stupid look on my face. <laughs> Well, that's kind of the idea of doing impressions, right? Like you're not actually trying to sound exactly like the person you're trying to do sort of like a, a caricature, like capture one, one thing. About the only them. one I was like really trying to do a good impression because I just, you know, worship the ground she walks on and I love her so much was Jennifer Tilly. I spent the most time working on that impression. I did that one. If anyone wants to go back and look it up, it was in January of I did it for New Year's of this year. So January, 2023. And that one, I actually put a lot of like time and prep in. I watched a lot of her interviews. A lot of the things I was saying were like stuff that she said or a version of something that she said in an interview. And, you know, she's an Oscar nominee herself. And I just think she's the coolest, sexiest lady with the most unique voice ever. And it was really important to me to nail the voice as much as I could. So that's the one impression I did where I was really trying to do a faithful impression. Do you have goals? Um, I don't know, do, do you set goals in general or are you still doing the kind of um, take it one day at a time sort of thing? I definitely set goals. So in 2022, I set a list of goals and I knocked out every single one of them pretty much. Like I wanted to grow my Twitter to 5K followers. I wanted to make 100 grand playing tournaments. I wanted to make at least like this amount of minutes worth of content or whatever. And I was like, and I think like goal setting is actually really important because then you get to, you can better track progress and you can better, you know, find goal posts along the way and the satisfaction you feel when you like actually complete it or, you know, make headway towards getting there. So yeah, I'm a big fan of some smart, what are they like? Sm- like sustainable, measurable <laughs> goals. 
So what are, what are the goals now? Make it to 10K followers on Twitter, which I'm getting pretty close. I'm like 800, 800 850 followers away from that. Put, put um, it out there. I, What's the handle? Caitlin Kameski, C-A-I-T-L-I-N-C-O-M-E-S-K-E-Y. We wanted to get ace holes to at least 3K subscribers, and we're already halfway there. We may be more than halfway there. We may, we may get, be getting pretty close to 3K followers. Um, I wanted to win 150K playing poker, which I'm not doing so hot on that goal so far this year, but that is a goal that I set. I wanted to get um, a brand deal and like establish more relationships with brands in poker, which we were lucky enough to get sponsored by Poker Night in America for Ace Holes Pod over the summer. So it's like my first official sponsorship within poker. And hopefully I'll get some some other nibbles on the hook, as it were, before the end of the year. And then I also want to launch merchandise so because um, – it's great to have such a loyal following on Twitter and know that I can put on a comp like a sketch and I'll get like at least a hundred K impressions and get a lot of views and a lot of likes, but it's hard to monetize that. So I really want to get a line of merchandise out so I can make it easier for people to <laughs> support the content and the work that I'm doing. It, it jumped out at me that, that um, some of those like for, the, the number of minutes of content that you're going to put out there, you know, that's a goal that's like entirely within your control. Like you, you can put the minutes mm -hmm. out or not. And then the, the poker side of things like make X dollars from poker, especially tournament poker strike me as something that's like very much not under your control. And I guess 100%, from like, yeah. get to X number of followers is like somewhere between where it's like, you could probably, I mean, I guess you could literally buy followers, but I'm assuming you're not doing that. Um, no, you know, no, but like you still, followers. You still can probably just like grind that out in a way that you couldn't necessarily with 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 poker profits. I mean, do you have thoughts on like how how much you want the the goal to be a thing that's sort of entirely with within your your willpower to to do versus something that's more speculative, like like making X dollars? Yeah, I think you make a great point. Like poker results are so outside of your control. It's a lot easier to make goals that. <laughs> you know, you can. And in terms of like numbers of followers or like a number of views, you know, that has a lot to just do with like consistency and not getting complacent and continuing to push my creativity and getting new, fresh ideas out there. But I'm definitely like at a spot in my career where I'm trying to decide like, not only like what my career looks like in terms of like, even before we started this interview, you're like, are you a content creator or a poker creator or a poker content creator? And it's like, gosh, you know, it kind of depends what day of the week it is. Like having an existential crisis two minutes before we start. Yeah, I know. Cause it can be, you know, like there's some weeks where it's like, I spend four or five hours studying and then I'll go grind. And then, you know, I'm working out and I'm eating right. And I'm like living the life of like a pro poker player, you know? And then, then, I'll go like a week without playing because I'm filming two episodes of Ace Holes and I'm doing a sketch or I'm doing, you know, the Thinking Out Loud poker podcast or, you know, whatever. And then it's like, well, that week I'm more of a content creator. So it's definitely, you know, the the dust is still settling down in terms of what the rest of my career is going to look like. But I just I feel incredibly hopeful, incredibly excited to have that problem of deciding how I want to spend my time. And at this point, I just like, you know, like I really want to be happy. What, whatever's making me happy is how I'm going to spend my time. That's the best goal in my opinion. For real, for real. Cause it's like some of these guys that 
won some of the most money in the summer or probably some of the most miserable pricks you ever met in your life. Like it was real. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think it's, I mean, just taking advantage of the flexibility that's a four, because there's a lot of downsides to both like content creation and poker as um, vocations. And, like the upside ought to be the flexibility and like being your own boss. And so if you're a shitty boss to yourself and you're like, well, I, you just have to do this whether you want to or not. Um, that just seems like you're just undermining the whole reason to be doing it in the first place. Yeah, definitely. A big goal of mine this year is like, figuring out how to better monetize the the time I'm spending doing content. And so far, uh, we like I said, you know, uh, Ace Holes has gotten a little sponsorship dollars and, you know, I'm starting to make headway in that regard. But it's it's a hard thing to to monetize content creation, especially in s- as small of a niche as poker. But um, I think poker continues to grow. I think, you know, we got a lot of people competing over these dollars. We just had WSOP announce, you know, the Bahama series to compete with the Win series in December. We've got Alexandra Botez starting her poker vlog. I think there are a lot of exciting things happening within the poker space where, you know, there's going to be more money to go around to support a lot of this content creation that exists right now. So, you know, I'm really hopeful that if I stay on the path that I'm on and I stay hopeful and I stay kind and excited and hungry that opportunities will continue to flow you know what whatever is meant for me is already mine as they say <laughs> well i i hope that it continues working out for you because it would it would be very personally disappointing for me if if you were no longer making the things that you're, you're like it's always very exciting for me when i see that there's a new uh a new kameski skit uh floating around twitter oh thanks man that, that warms my little heart uh, is there anything else you were hoping to talk about that we didn't uh, know to ask you? No, just make sure you're subscribed to Aceholes Pod on uh, YouTube, youtube.com slash at, you need the at sign at Aceholes Pod. Um, we're also on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok if you want to see some fun, cute, digestible clips if you don't have the full hour to spare. Other than that, you can catch all my comedy sketches on Twitter. And then I also have a YouTube page, Caitlin from Texas Poker, if you want those on demand and like easily organized and you don't want to like <laughs> search through my whole Twitter. Well, thanks for doing this. It was very nice getting to know you. Yeah, this is. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Uh, of a car light of the fair passage of a bill and who will sign us into law I know you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't you won't you won't you won't sign us I drafted up a beautiful contract